Well, as we come to our text this morning, we're in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. And in this text, which you'll find on page 1200 there in your pew Bibles, it brings up a new idea for us with regards to at least the book of Hebrews. Not at all new to us in general because it deals with the concepts of growth and progression. Well, we're very familiar with the idea of growth as it is really the focus of our Christian lives. Our purpose in coming together each Sunday is not just the wonderful fellowship, although we delight in that, but really it is so that in that fellowship we can grow in one another. We can understand more about the needs that we have. We can share our prayer requests. We can rejoice in God's deliverance and provision from difficult times. And we can look into his word and we can be encouraged to grow yet still more. All of the facets of our spiritual lives are to be focused on growth. And I've said before, that there are really only two conditions or two states of existence on this earth. We are either growing or we are dying. There is no point of stagnation. And I know that for me, and I trust for you as well, I want to be on that growth trend. And it is that idea of growth and progress that really comes forward in our text this morning. Some verses just to kind of launch us off on thinking of this idea of growth come in Philippians chapter 3 in verses 12 to 14. Something you're very familiar with. Listen as I read them. Philippians 3.12 begins, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, the greatest of the apostles, said, you know, I'm not going to stop and think about what's behind me. Yes, there are some victories, more losses though than victories, but whatever they are, they are behind me. I'm going to reach on and reach up in progress, pressing toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's that same idea that we discussed a few weeks back in Hebrews 5 as we were talking about the distinctions between milk and meat. That idea of moving beyond the, the milk of the word and wanting the meat and wanting the depth. It's perhaps best summed up in Ephesians 4.15, which says, Ephesians 4 and 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Our lives are to be a moment-by-moment, step-by-step, continual progression in growth towards our head, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a beautiful picture of him fully painted for us in the scriptures. And we are called to look into that word and to grow towards it, to become Christ-like in every facet of our lives. But in our text today, we're focusing on the priesthood particularly Jesus' supremacy over the priesthood. So connecting our idea of the priesthood with the concepts of growth and progress is what leads us to our title for the message this morning. I've titled our message, The Progression of Priestly Perfection. The Progression of Priestly Perfection. This whole section goes from verses 11 to 22 of Hebrews 7. We're not going to cover all 12 verses this morning, so we'll start in and see how far the Lord allows us to go. Let's take a look, though, and read through that section just to set our minds on what's being discussed as we consider these ideas of growth in progression. Follow along with me, if you would, as I read Hebrews 7, 11 to 22. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? 
and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And, it is, and this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Praise the Lord for his word. The progression of priestly perfection. Now, last week, we carried forward our discussion of this Melchizedek. And we discussed what a conundrum this was because there is so little in the scripture that reveals who he is, and yet he is so important. He carries a critical position in God's word. We discussed that there were six different options, essentially, that have been brought forward as to who this Melchizedek could be. Really, there were three, but one of those options had four different permutations. The first we looked at was Shem, the oldest son of Noah. We decided it could not be Shem because of verse 3 of Hebrews 7, where it said that he had no father, no mother, no beginning of days, no end of life. And because we know all of those things about Shem as they're recorded in Scripture, it couldn't be him. So that took away our first option. The next option we looked at was God. And within that, there were actually four different options. The first we considered was, could Melchizedek be God the Father? We saw that because of Genesis 14, 18, which says he is a priest of the Most High God, El Elyon, the Creator God, that he could not be both a priest of God and be God. Because the fact that he is called a priest of God is in itself designating a subset or one who is subservient to the one who is, he is under. So he cannot be God the Father. Then we considered, could Melchizedek be God the Holy Spirit? We said, no, we don't believe he can be God the Holy Spirit because never in the scripture is there a physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit of God. So we considered, could he be God the Son? This is where we start to get a little more close to the reality of what Scripture is addressing. And there were two options. Either he could have been a pre-incarnate picture of Christ, that is, not in actual flesh, or he could have been an incarnate picture of Christ. Well, we knew that Melchizedek could not be an incarnate or a fleshly version of Christ before his first advent because it contradicted texts like John 1.14, which says, and, he became and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So as Jesus became flesh for that first time, there could not have been a prior fleshly manifestation. So that left us with the possibility of a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. This seemed like there was some good likelihood to it. Hebrews 7, 3, again, carried forward all of those ideas without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days nor end of life, all of those applicable to Melchizedek and to Christ. 
And then in Hebrews 7, 2, it said that he was the king of righteousness and the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Well, what do we know about Jesus? He is all throughout the scripture connected with righteousness. He is called the prince of peace. So that has a, a, a positive and a negative. Is there a connection there with king of peace and prince of peace? It seems like there could be, but we're unsure. So we look on. Hebrews 7, 8 told us that in the case of mortal men who receive tithes, but in this case one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lived on. We examined that that witness for, was from Psalm 110 in verse 4, which is quoted repeatedly throughout this text. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is showing us that Melchizedek is evidenced in Psalm 110.4, and so also is the Son of God evidenced. So this is a close connection, giving us further possibility that this could be a pre-incarnate Christ. We mentioned and talked about the priesthood. Now the, the priesthood of Melchizedek obviously preceded that of Aaron and of the Levitical priesthood chronologically because Abraham predated the, that priesthood by uh, about six to seven hundred years. So that there was a priesthood of Melchizedek that was established, a following Levitical priesthood, but that that priesthood was just for the Jews. So did that mean that all of the Gentiles were excluded from faith? Or could there have been parallel priesthoods that went forward? But we don't know. It's not shown directly to us. But we know that in 7.3, it is told to us of Melchizedek that he is a priest perpetually. So does this mean that if Christ is a priest like Melchizedek, that at some point there were two priesthoods, uh, that of Jesus and of Melchizedek going on continuously. That doesn't seem likely. So do we have a conflict there? It could, the resolution of that could lie in the word perpetually. It's not the same word as scripture uses for eternal. So perhaps it was perpetual to the time of Christ taking over. The challenge that we have is that we also know that this Melchizedek was a king who was known by others. He was known by Abraham, and he was known by the king of Sodom, who also came together in Genesis 14. So at this point, we can't say conclusively. Now, we're going to see a little more discussion about who Melchizedek may have been in our text today. But probably the don't know option that Melchizedek was simply a type of Christ is the strongest at this point. But there is no doubt some very strong evidence to support the potential of a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in Melchizedek. Well, again, you'll see a bit more of that today. We also discussed last week this idea of giving. And we think, well, well how does giving tie into all of that section on Melchizedek? Because that word tithe or tenth appeared seven times and I hope that as you went to your fellowship groups, you discussed that idea of giving. That it was ultimately, throughout the text, shown to be an act of worship. That we don't give out of obligation. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul tells us that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Not one who feels compelled or obligated to give of his tithings. That word cheerful really can be translated as hilarious in the Greek text. God wants us to give so much that we delight and we ought be truly hilarious as we consider that we are rewarded for giving back to God that which he has given to us. It is such a beautiful picture of God's amazing grace. And that, and that our giving is not a tithe today. A tithe was a mandatory tax. And if you want to consider well, should we be doing the same thing they did in the Old Testament if we're going to hold to a system of tithes? There actually were three different tithes. Again, the word meaning tenth. There was a tenth or a tithe that went to the Levitical priesthood. There was a tenth 
or tithe that went to the theocracy that was the maintenance of the temple and the temple system. And then there was another tenth that was given every third year. So there was a total of 23 and a third percent that they were to give, they were commanded to bring forward in their tithe. So if you feel like that your giving should equal the Old Testament, you can take that check and figure out 23% of your, of your gross income and go ahead and write that and put it in the plate. Now again, this was a very different system because that was paying for the governmental theocracy as well. So it's not an element for us of a percentage. It is where is our heart? What would we like to give back to God? And to consider that a, a tithe or a tenth is a place to begin is not a bad consideration, but this is not to be considered a tax. Some have asked, as we were in our fellowship group, well, what's, what's the connection to the superiority of Christ? If that's what all of the book of Hebrews is about, and we've repeatedly said it is, how did that connect with this whole idea of Melchizedek and giving? I mean, what is the interconnection between all of this? Remember how we've talked about the beauty of the grammar in the book of Hebrews. How it is probably the most glorious, grammatically structured book in all of the scripture. Well, what's happening for us is that our author is carefully building a case for the supremacy of Jesus Christ over the priesthood. Because that was the major issue for the Jewish people. This is the biggest section in Hebrews. They were totally tied to that. This was our system. We believed in the priesthood. For thousands of years, we have brought our sacrifices. We have brought our tithes. And now you're telling us that there is a change? Change doesn't sit well for us sometimes, and it didn't sit well for them. So our author is building an elaborate argument. He began in chapter 6 in verses 13 to 20, and he showed us the greatness of Abraham. No self-respecting Jew could argue how amazing Abraham was. And we even read about it in our text in Romans 4. Not just as he in the Old Testament perceived as such, but in the New Testament as well. So he presents the greatness of Abraham. And then at the beginning of chapter 7, he shows us that Melchizedek, this priest of the Most High God, is even greater than Abraham. So now he's established a hierarchy. Well, now we're going to move in to understanding that there is one who is greater even than Melchizedek. And this is the progression of of priestly perfection. And with that, let's look at our first point in verse 11, an unexpected inquiry. An unexpected inquiry. We've labeled this point as such because there is a question that comes forward in verse 11. And the question boils down to this. If the Levitical priesthood was perfect, why was there a need for another priest? We, we know that the priest being referenced here is Christ, not Melchizedek, because of that chronology. We've now moved beyond the Levitical priesthood, and so now we're speaking about Christ's priesthood. But notice something about this whole section. Jesus' name does not appear until the very last verse, in verse 22. Because he's building a climax. He's drawing us through. He's establishing this case and helping us see that this one who is being presented is clearly even greater than Melchizedek and Abraham. And it actually goes clear to the end of the chapter. Look, in fact, at the last two words of verse 28 of chapter 7. Made perfect forever. This is the conclusion of our whole section. Look at the first words of verse 11. Now, if perfection. So that we begin with the question, does perfection exist? And we'll conclude eventually in verse 28 with what that perfection is, one who is perfect forever. Again, just a beautiful argument. Let's back up and look at this first point in verse 11 in detail. 
Verse 11 says, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Of course, the order of Aaron in our text is the Levitical priesthood. All of the Levites descended from Aaron and also their laid the, the priestly role. Well, one main connection that must be noted here is the connection between priesthood and law. The middle of the verse says, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. The it there in the middle of that clause is the idea of the Levitical priesthood. It was the priesthood that conveyed the law to the people. The priests were the ones who were to stand for God. They were to represent the law to the people. This was their main job, and it was a vital job. The author is not casting dispersion on the priesthood or the law in any way. That somehow it was not good. In fact, we know that that's the case because we know what Paul says in Romans 7.12. Paul says about the law in Romans 7, 12. He says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So there's no, there's no casting dispersion upon the law here. They're simply saying that the priesthood was to reflect the law. So the problem was not the law. It was the men who were charged with carrying it forward and their ability to obey it. It's interesting as well that the tense of our verb received in verse 11, where it says there, on the basis of it, the people received the law, shows that this was a past action with continuing results. That means the priests were the ones mainly responsible to reveal God's law to the people. Some, some would say, well, wasn't that the king's job? Initially, remember, there was no king. This was a theocracy. God was the king. And when ultimately a king was installed, that king did have to write down for himself a copy of the law, but that was not so that he could bring it forward, but so that he could study it, so that he could live it out. So the king was never to represent the priesthood. And those that did, Saul and Uzziah particularly, When they stepped into the role of priest, they were immediately and severely punished. The office of king and priest were expressly separated, except in the person of Melchizedek and in the person of Jesus Christ. Keep watching and see how this idea will impact our thinking on Melchizedek. Additionally, the king's hand copying of the law for his daily study helped show that he was obedient. So it was that priesthood that had to bring the law to the people. And the word people is most interesting here as well. When it is used in the scripture, it is referring to the children of Israel. It is not referring to both Jew and Gentile. It is talking just to those who were the children of Israel. This is is important understanding because of our connection to Melchizedek and the Son of God. Because the Gentiles are not included in the law. The priesthood was only to represent the law to the Jews. Now, ultimately, they were, through the Abrahamic covenant, to be a blessing to all of the nations. But specifically, this was delineated for the Jewish people. So this begs the question that if the Gentiles were not represented in the Levitical system, where were they? Were they excluded? Would God do that? Of course not. We even saw hints of that again in our scripture reading from Romans 4. But did they do so? That is, did the priests represent the law to the people? Not adequately. And as verse 11 says, not perfectly. For perfection did not occur through the law as revealed in the priesthood. Romans 3, 19 and 20 expresses the limitation of the law. Listen to these verses. Romans 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, 
so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Just as we read in Romans 4, the law was meant for one purpose. It was to reveal the wrath of God. It was to show sin and to show that God was a just and righteous God and he had to punish that sin. Galatians 2.16 conveys the same theme. But it was not perfect because there was, so there was a need for a new program or perhaps rather than a new program, we should understand it as a progression. We might tend to ask why? After all, we're, we're certainly not perfect as human beings, so, so why was there a need for a perfect law? I mean, when we look at our court system today, do you feel like we have a perfect system in our courts? Not hardly. But remember what law was and is. It was to represent the foundation of that for which it stood. When we consider the United States jurisprudence system, it is to represent all that the founding fathers of this country attempted to establish in all that was right and honorable and carried the integrity of the men who established it. And they worked extremely hard to do so. But the best of men are men at best. Well, what does the Levitical system represent? It represented God to the people. A God who is holy, a God who is just, a God who is righteous, a God who is all-knowing and all-powerful and ever-present, a God who is all-good. In short, a God who is perfect. Well, any law that represents God who is perfect must in itself be perfect. But the law did not achieve that perfection. Therefore, there was a need for another priest to arise, one from the order of Melchizedek, one who was the Son of God, the one who God the Father appointed as priest in Psalm 110.4, the one called Lord or Adonai, one not designated according to the Aaronic line. Notice also that the foreshadowing in the word arise in verse 11. This is the same word that we come to our word resurrection from, speaking of our Lord. For the Jews, this was indeed an unexpected question. Their entire religious connection was through the Levitical priesthood. And now they had been exposed to the deep question as to who this Melchizedek was. And even more, they've been exposed to the imperfection of the Levitical system and its reflection of the law. Their entire religious system now being brought into question. This was indeed an unexpected question. And it leads to our next point in verse 12. An unexpected question gives way to an unrealized innovation. An unrealized innovation. Look at verse 12 with me. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. One of the reasons this is an unexpected innovation is because the Jews had not been considering a change in the priesthood. This was part of their problem. They weren't trying to come up and to, to meld themselves into a new system. They were attempting to just add Jesus to their old system. Let's just layer him on. After all, Jesus was Jewish. He was the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. So why not continue our Old Testament program and we'll just add Jesus to it? Why not continue that Old Testament methodology? Well, verse 12 explains that now there is a change. And the emphasis on change is so strong that that word change appears twice in that very short verse. And as the priesthood changes, so also must the law change. Well, the law being changed is the Mosaic law or the Mosaic covenant. Well, we know what this law is, don't we? It's, it's the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of our Bible. Well, that pr then presses the question, what is the new law? 
Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, page 1128 in your pew Bibles. Same page or one page different from our scripture reading this morning. Romans 3 explains to us about this very transition and helps us see what this new law is. A few minutes ago, I read Romans 3, 19 to 20 to examine the imperfection of the law, that which our previous verse from Hebrews seven twelve discussed. Now, down in Romans three twenty seven, we see the change of the law, which was evidenced as being imperfect. But let's continue on in our context. Look at verse 21 of Romans 3, just so we stay in the same line of thought, understanding the imperfection of the law from Romans 3, 19 and 20. Look at verse 21 with me. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. There is, there is now a righteousness that is being witnessed apart from from the law and the prophets, something that is separated or different. Verse 22 continues, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These verses talk to us about the justification that comes in Christ alone. And they tell us that all need that justification. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. We all need Christ. And we're told that the gift of saving faith is by the grace of God. That he opens blind eyes and shows the light of Christ and shines it upon the heart. Then we pick up at verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. The law of works is synonymous with the Mosaic law. Now we have a new law, and here it is at the end of verse 27. It is the law of faith. Verse 28 continues, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So justification is by faith through grace, and it is offered to both Jew and Gentile coming together both under the law of faith. Continuing in verse 30, or yeah, verse 30, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do you see what's happening here? The God who is one is justifying through the law of faith both the Jew and the Gentile. We began with Melchizedek with a single priesthood that was carrying forth up into the time of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, and there was a separation. And then there was the Levitical priesthood and a continuation of the Gentile priesthood that's undiscussed. And now again, at the conclusion of the Mosaic priesthood, we have again a unification of Jew and Gentile under a new law, which is the law of faith. It was the circumcision of the heart that God truly wanted throughout even the Levitical priesthood. It was not that there were varying modes of salvation. It was that there needed to be a submission that came from the heart and not simply a circumcision of the flesh. Moses himself said this in Deuteronomy 30 in verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. It was not a physical act. It was an act of the heart, an act which God wrought in the hearts of man. And at the end of Romans 3, it says in verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. It's almost the law was the beginning and now there is a progression to the law of faith from the Mosaic law. Jesus fulfilling the law as we know from Matthew 5, 17 where the Lord himself said, I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And so indeed he did. The law of faith had existed from the time of Abraham and had continued. Notice this is what Romans 4, 1 to 3 say. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham realized that the law of faith came from his obedience to God. The law of faith predated the Mosaic law and it continued on through and worked in parallel with the Levitical law if the priesthood would have rightly portrayed it and if there would have been circumcised hearts on behalf of the Jewish nation. Yet now there was a need for a change, a change to the mindset. Turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 7, please. This was an unrealized innovation because it was something that was revealed throughout the law and the prophets, as we saw in Romans 3.21. This was a change in the priesthood, a, a change in the law, a change in the covenant, and it was the inauguration of a new covenant. This is just what the Lord said at the Last Supper, wasn't he? Isn't this what we speak about every time we come to the Lord's table to celebrate communion? Where the Lord celebrated the final Passover and inaugurated the Lord's table and communion? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. Do you remember those special words that the Lord said? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's table was the inauguration of the new covenant. So where do we find that new covenant? Is it in the New Testament? Not at all. It's back in the Old Testament. As Romans 3 told us, the law and the prophets bearing witness for us. It's in Jeremiah 31, 31, and in Ezekiel 36. And it is so beautiful. Let me read to you Ezekiel's proclamation of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." You will live in the land that I gave to your fathers, so you will be my people and I will be your God. This was the new covenant proclaimed to the nation of Israel. And we as Gentiles have been grafted in to that new covenant. 
the Jews did not realize this. They did not understand this change even when the Old Testament evidenced it for them. Yet it was necessary for them to understand the tra- this transition which had occurred. Meanwhile, they'd all been going along just, just doing the status quo, just doing the same old thing, observing the law, observing the Mosaic system. Okay, Jesus is the Messiah. We'll add him to the Mosaic system. You know, that's just absolutely silliness, isn't it? I've heard it said that the definition of a fool is one who continues to do the same thing but expects different results. Is that not what was going on? But it isn't just the Jews who were doing this, was it? Oftentimes, this very thing is what's happening in the Christian church today. And I would suspect has happened in each of our lives and perhaps is still happening in some of your lives today. Oftentimes, this very thing goes on. People believe they can just add Jesus to their current lifestyles and go on living. But it doesn't work that way. When we come to Christ, there must be a radical transformation in our lives. Everything must be reassessed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, You are a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. Those old things have to be gone. You can't live in the sin and the squalor that you used to wallow in. They have to be stripped from you. Your language must change. Your thoughts must change. Your actions must change. You are a new creation in Christ. No longer can this be the way that we live. Everything must be exposed to the light of Christ. Beloved, if we are not daily assessing our own lives in light of Christ and in light of the scriptures, then we're just as blind as the Jews trying to simply layer Jesus on top of our world system. It is the most horrific and offensive eclectical religious system conceivable. So we must make certain that our lives are evidencing obedience to the law of faith because only in this way is a man justified. This radical change is exactly what verse 12 is conveying. The Aaronic priesthood, the Mosaic law, and the Mosaic covenant were completely abrogated, and there was a new law. And there is a new law today. And that law is what must rule in our hearts. An unexpected inquiry an unrealized inception, and our third point, an unforeseen intermediary. An unforeseen intermediary. Look at verse 13 with me. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. The one being spoken of here is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Although as yet not directly spoken of, but only inferred, As I previously said, he's not mentioned by name until verse 22 because there is a climactic building that is going on. And this builds the progression and the case that he's making. He was of another tribe, in particular, not the tribe of Levi nor the Levitical priesthood. The verb belong here shows that this was another past action carried forward. The Lord Jesus has always been from that tribe of Judah and that result has been through all time. That's exactly what the blessing that Jacob proclaimed in Genesis 49.10 to his son Judah was. That the scepter would not depart from between his feet. The permanence of this priesthood gives us further indication as to the connection of Melchizedek and the Son of God. Verse 13 also says this one had never officiated at the altar. What does that mean? Never officiated at the altar. The altar spoken of here, which helps clarify this, is not the altar of incense inside the Holy of Holies. It is the bronze altar that sat outside of the temple and outside of the tabernacle. It is where all of the sacrifices were burned. Another very interesting verbal situation arises with another perfect verb officiated. A past action with continuing results, only now with a negation. 
It says he has never officiated at the altar, never in the past, and that never will be throughout the future. As if to say he will never be at that altar. Well, why? Well, think of the priest's role at the altar. We came as the obedient Jews with our sacrifice, with our blemish, unblemished lamb without spot, and we brought it before the priesthood in front of the altar and the huge blazing fire, and we laid our hand upon that lamb, and we took the priest's knife, and we slit the throat of that lamb. And they took that animal, and they prepared it to burn on the brazen altar there. Well, there would be no need for Jesus to offer a sacrifice at the altar. Of course not. He offered himself a sacrifice once for all. And it was not a burnt offering. It was an offering on the cross at Calvary. What a beautiful word picture this simple, perfect verb conveys. Look at verse 14 as we continue. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Verse 14 completes the description that verse 13 began. It begins by stating that it is evident. That word could be also translated, it is clear or it is perfectly clear. There was no question as to Jesus' descent from Judah. The scriptures are full of prophetic connections to Jesus Christ and the tribe of Judah. They go all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament. Here's one in Numbers 24, 17. I just, I love. You might not have thought of this often as Numbers may not be the first book you jump to in your daily Bible reading. Numbers 24, 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. That scepter and that star was Christ proclaimed at the beginning of the Levitical priesthood. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Micah 5.2 But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And on and on, Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6, into the book of Daniel and into Zechariah. The references to our Lord are perfectly clear as Jesus. It is furthermore a confessional statement in verse 14. Notice, he is not simply Lord or your Lord. He is our Lord. The author is including himself in this confessional. This is my Lord that I'm speaking about. You know, whenever we read in the Bible and we see someone talking about your Lord or your God, pay close attention to what's going on in the heart of that man. The one that jumps to my mind always is King Saul. As King Saul is talking to Samuel the prophet, he, he, start, he talks about God as your God. What does that mean when we say that? That means he's not our God. Well, it has got to be our God that we are confessing and bringing forward. The author's intent is to show that nowhere in the law is there a reference to any role of Judah in the priesthood. And yet, here he is, a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This was indeed an unforeseen intermediary. None of these conceptions of Jesus were what the Jewish church of the Hebrews had expected. These progressions were foreign to their way of thinking. But yet, they were being called to press beyond their current state of mind to embrace these truths. They had to recognize the law which they had grown up with was changed. It had been completely removed. Everything was different. It was different in a way that they had never considered. And as we earlier mentioned, this is also how it must be now for every new believer. But beloved, it isn't just for the new believer. It is for every believer. You must be constantly recognizing your need for growth. Ask yourself these questions 
And if there are any areas where you're not satisfied with your answer, just write down that one word area so you can work on it as we describe these spiritual areas. When it comes to the simple matters of Bible reading and prayer, you must progress and grow. When it comes to body life issues like ministering to one another and discipling one another, you must progress and grow. When it comes to the external elements of spiritually ministering to our community or evangelizing the lost, you must progress and grow. Can I be so bold as to ask how many of those six you wrote down? Those six different aspects, Bible reading, prayer, ministering to the church, discipleship, ministering to the community, and the unsaved, and evangelism. Now, I don't want to pick on you, so let me tell you how many of those six I'm satisfied with and that I wrote down last night with my wonderful hands. I had six that I wrote down. I'm not satisfied with any of those in my life. I need to grow in my Bible reading and my prayer. I need to grow in my love of you as this most amazing congregation. I need to grow in my discipleship of those beautiful men that God has put in this church to proclaim Christ. I need to grow as I go out into this community and love them for our Lord and as I evangelize to my neighbors and those I I come in contact with. How about you? My beloved church, if you're satisfied with your spiritual walk in any of these areas, I'm afraid for you. You must constantly be assessing how you can grow in Christ. You see, the progress of priestly perfection is not just about the progression of thought from Abraham to Melchizedek to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's also about your priesthood. Because 1 Peter 2.9 declares this to us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Are you ready to grow, beloved? Your opportunities for Bible reading and prayer, they lie in your hand, in that book that you hold, and in your heart's commitment. Your opportunities to minister to this body and to disciple them, they lie all around you. All you have to do is look about. And your opportunities to minister to the community and, and to worship them is, comes by opening your mouth to speak about the glorious Savior who has drawn you from hell. Are you ready to embrace your growth? I pray that you are.